continuing tonight in the first letter of John, first John chapter two, verses seven through eleven, the commandment old and new. John writes, contending for the faith. As we look through the first chapter and now well into the second chapter of John's letter, he writes proclaiming the message of the gospel. A message that was manifest in Jesus Christ who John himself, as well as the rest of the apostles, saw and heard and touched. This was from the beginning of the revealing of Christ. Down across time to the point in time when this letter was written at the very end of John's life and even all the way down to us in order that those that hear it may have fellowship with Christ and the apostles in the person of the Gospel. It is Jesus Christ. And this fellowship that John proclaims is not the legalism of sinless perfection lest we be liars or the lasciviousness of saying God has no concern over our sin lest we make Him out to be a liar, but instead is based on a relationship of abiding in Christ. <clears throat> abiding. The, the, the idea of being somewhere while being at rest. Abiding after the manner that Christ abides in the Father and nothing less. Um, it is of particular amazement to me that not only did Jesus Christ see fit to save His people, but the degree to which He saved them is mind-boggling. Not simply that they would be legally justified in their guilt, but He would elevate them to something much greater than where they had begun before Adam and Eve fell. That where they were simply the creation without fault but far from perfect, they would be even called the sons and daughters of God. And that He would allow them to abide in Him in a way of abiding that had previously only existed between Him the Father and the Holy Spirit. That we would abide in Christ the way Christ abides in the Father. Which begins with the gift of love for Christ that's given to us by the Father. It's manifest in obedience to His commands and it proves that we are His disciples that Christ's joy may be in us. And not only does He do that, but when we do sin, John says we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is interceding, literally getting between us and the justice of God, for He is the only mediator between God and man. He is the propitiator, not only for the Jew, but instead to the whole world, to all peoples, even to us Gentiles. All of this so that we may know, that we may gnosko, that we may intimately know that we know Him and are known by Him. Today, the commandment in which we abide. And so here in John chapter 2, and I want to start in verses 7-8, through 8, the Apostle continues and he says, Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in Him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Now, when you first come across this, you kind of stump your toe on a little bit. It seems a bit left-handed. 
The first thing John says is, I'm not telling you any new commandment, I'm telling you an old commandment. And it's at the same time a new commandment. And this new commandment is in Him. And at the same time, it's in you. Know this because the darkness is passing away. And the true light is already shining. There is no doubt that what John is speaking about here in the second chapter of the first epistle of John is a commandment which has dual, at least dual aspects. It is both old and new. It is both in Him and in them. By extension, in us. The commandment is old. And this is something that I hope after all these years now at Mount Zion that we are very familiar with. You know, it was 15 years ago, 16 years ago, um, you know, in a, a move of a lot of passion and probably some of the exuberance of youth, you know, I, I you know, tore out the page of my Bible that said New Testament on it in the pulpit one day. And uh, I wasn't trying to be a showman. I was, I was pretty fired up. But uh, and, and, and it seemed like such a new concept for us then. Now it's something that our, our second graders understand. Man, that this, this, this thing that is the Gospel is not new, that it is ancient and it is old. It is ageless grace. And it goes not just back to Abraham or, 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 or David after him. It doesn't go just back. It goes all the way back to the beginning. And not even just to the garden where not even just the garden where, where, where the Lord is proclaiming that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. It, it, it goes all the way back from the moment when the Trinity looked at each other and said, let's create. Well, create what? No, yeah, let's create. It was there then. It is, it is the hub on which existence turns. It is the Gospel of Jesus Christ and it is no new commandment. It is old. And it was proclaimed to Abraham. We know this stuff, and because we know it well, I don't want it to become second. Um, I, don't, I don't want it to become secondhand to us. And in John chapter eight, verse fifty-six, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. It wasn't just a hope that Abraham had that he would see the day of Christ. He saw Christ. Galatians chapter three, verse eight. It says the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham to preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Peter will tell us, just a couple of pages back over to the left, in his first epistle, Peter will tell us that this gospel of Jesus Christ is the content of the prophetic message across the generations. That when the prophets wrote, this was what they were writing about. Now this goes hand in hand with what Jesus told the Pharisees when He said, look, you Pharisees, search the Scriptures and search the Scriptures and search the Scriptures because you think that in them you'll find eternal life. But the fact of the matter is, they speak about Me, Christ said. And He wasn't disputing that in them you would find eternal life. What He was telling them is that the eternal life that they speak of is Christ. And so here's Peter expounding on that idea in 1 Peter chapter 1. In verse 10 through 11, we'll come back here in a minute, but for now, just 10 and 11. In verse 10 and 11, speaking about the salvation that is in the gospel, Peter says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, 
inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them. Oh, let's stop here. So here's what you got. Once again, this is one of those things that there's some dual aspects of going on. Okay, on one hand, you've got the prophets back here in antiquity. And they are searching and they are inquiring about what person or time the Spirit of Christ was indicated when He predicted all of that which was coming with the revealing of the Gospel, the suffering of Christ, and the subsequent glories. They were looking for this thing that was coming, and yet the manner in which they were searching it out was the Spirit of Christ that was already in them. Not on them. You know, that was one of the things that you know, I heard a lot as, as kind of a young man that was supposedly the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament was that uh, the way the Spirit functioned was fundamentally different. And that in, in the Old Testament, the Spirit would, would come on someone and kind of put them on like a, a cloak or you know, a jacket or kind of a prop, prophet Superman cape. And as long as the Spirit was on you, then, then you, know, you could do all of these things and and then the Spirit would leave. And the difference now is the people of God are permanently dwelled by the Holy Spirit. And Scripture teaches us constantly that both in the Old and New Testaments, the people of God, of God are born again by the permanent indwelling of the Spirit. And then from time to time, particularly empowered by a rushing of the Spirit to certain things that God has commanded of them. And this is the case in the Old Testament. It's the case in the New Testament. And this is what Peter's saying about the prophets. They were looking for something about the gospel that was to come, the commandment that these people that had received that was old. They were looking to something that was not yet manifest, but the manner in which they were looking was that thing already in them. And the Spirit of Christ in them. And the commandment is old. It was proclaimed in the garden. It was proclaimed to Abraham. David spoke of it continually in the Psalms. It was the content of what the prophets were seeking and writing about. And yet they were doing so through the Spirit of Christ in them because the commandment is not only old, it is in Christ. It's a commandment that's old and a commandment that's in Him. We shouldn't be surprised. It's always about Christ. Amen. He was the seed that was foretold. He was the substance to which the sacrificial law was only the shadow and the copy. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And when you consider these dual aspects that the commandment is old and the commandment is new, and the commandment is in Him and the commandment is in you, I would make the argument tonight, of course, that it is Jesus Christ that binds all of this together. He is what holds the old and the new in such a way that it is not a paradox. He is the one that holds the fact that commandment is in Him and in you in such a way that it is not a contradiction. Because indeed, He is in us. The commandment is old. It's older than time. It's old because it's in Christ and Christ is timeless. Mm -hmm. But the commandment is also new. And it's in you. And it's the same commandment. John says, it is the commandment that you heard. 
the one that he opened this letter about, where he said, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, and which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, he was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. And that is the old commandment. That is the new commandment that John is proclaiming. He says the commandment is that which you heard is old. And it is new. For Jesus teaches us in Matthew chapter 5, 17 through 20. We'll be there before long. That the commandment both remains and is fulfilled. The commandment is old, the commandment is new, it's in Christ, it's in you. The law remains and the law is fulfilled. In Matthew 5, verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Don't think I've come to abolish the law, he says. I've not come to abolish it, I've come to fulfill it. And it's in its fulfilled state, it remains. For it is Jesus Christ who shows us the true depth of the law. And without Him and apart from Him, the law itself is an enigma. And if you, we're not going to go there tonight, but if you look to what Paul says in, in Hebrews, speaking, well, If you look at what the author of Hebrews, how about that? That's nice and, and non-controversial. Right? Um, if, if you look at what the author of Hebrews has to say about the nature of the law, until you understand that it is the shadow and copy that Jesus Christ comes in the fullness of, it, Hebrews says, man, there's all sorts of weird stuff about the law that nobody gets until you get that it's Christ. I mean, when he's talking in the propitiation section, which is one of the most enlightening sections in all of Scripture to me, and is one of my favorite places to go, when he's talking in the propitiation section that happens in heaven and not in the temple in Jerusalem, he says, man, you know the blood of a goat's not worth the blood of a man. And you know it. And yet, the law says, by the blood of this lamb, by the blood of these goats, but this is the way that your sin will be propitiated. How can that be? Because it's the shadow. Christ is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And author of Hebrews says the law seems to be self-contradictory. And it says that the life of a man is worth more than the life of an animal. But then it says you can take the life of an animal and not only propitiate a single man's sin, but you can do it for an entire nation for a year. And that doesn't compute. The reason it doesn't compute is because Christ had not been revealed. Now He has. You go, okay. Here's the fulfillment. Here is the, as John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ shows us the true depth of the law in His revealing. In uh, the book of Colossians, 
chapter 1 and uh, verse 24 uh, through 29, Paul writes, uh, and there's no controversy there, Paul writes and he says this, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh and filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the Word of God fully known. So here is the stewardship that Paul has been tasked with, and that is to cause the Word of God, which has not been fully known in the past, to be fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And for this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works in me. Paul takes the old, the in Him, the new, and the in you and wraps it all together in a ball and says Jesus is the one that binds it because it's all about Him. He says, look, for me, it's just like it was with the prophets. It is the Spirit of Christ in me that has, that has laid this charge before me to tell you about something old, but you didn't understand it because it was a mystery that was hidden in ages past, but it has now been revealed in Jesus Christ. So that which is old is also new, and that Spirit which is in me that is causing this to be made fully known, in making it fully known, it will be in you when you are justified by God in the blood of Christ Jesus. This is happening in you. It's not, it, it's not a commandment that is happening in Christ that then is somehow externally attached to us. And I think that's important to note because Scripture basically, in speaking about salvation in Christ, there are always two aspects that Scripture addresses. And one is the legal aspect. This is what we touched on just a little earlier. I want to come back to it here at the closing. Um, one is the legal aspect that says, yes, man, there is God is just, uh, God is righteous, and, and righteous justice, that is to say right justice, requires certain things, and, and under the, the, the righteousness of God, what is required for your sin is death, and life is not set in the blood, and therefore it's your lifeblood that is required for your sin before a holy God. And that has to be paid. And it was paid in Jesus Christ. And it legally justifies you. It legally propitiates your sin. And all of that is absolutely true. And without it, you have no meaningful gospel. Without it, you have gospel that is nothing but just, you know, rainbows and butterflies and, and, and has no ability to actually get the job done. Because what a just God does not do is simply go, we won't worry about your sin. He doesn't do that. He's just. And just the way that you would be appalled if the judge sitting on the bench looked at a pedophile or a murderer that came before him and said, don't worry about it, buddy. It's okay. Go home. We would be horrified about a God that passed over sin in that manner. 
the legal aspect is, is, is critical to the gospel, but so is the love and glory aspect that drives him to perform the difficulties of the legal reality. And it's because of that love and glory drive that he doesn't just wipe your legal slate clean, but then in Christ elevates you to being the very children of God. He wasn't content just to leave it at dead even. He didn't bring you back to Adam. He, he, he's going to bring you to something that is higher that is higher than the angels. Right now, this is free. Right now, the highest form of created being is Lucifer. <coughs> there will be a day when he will be supplanted in such a way that there are ten thousands upon ten thousands from every tribe, language, and nation innumerable masses it says in Revelation that are a higher form of creation than he is right now he's at the top of the eight. one day he will be way down you wonder why he hates you so much you have to have the legal aspect you have to have the drive that makes a holy God willing to sacrifice himself when he had known no sacrifice. Man, this is revealed in Christ. The commandment is old, the commandment is new, the commandment is in Christ, but it's also in you. Not just attached to you. It's in you. And the reason we know that's the case, John says, is because being us being temporal creatures, we can see the evidence of that in time. The darkness is already passing away, he says. That's present tense, real time, as John is writing, for the church in the first century, as well as for the church in the 21st century. Man, this is real for us. This is in them, and it's in us. The old and the new, that which is in Christ, was in them, it's in us that we may abide in Him and have fellowship with Him and with them. And you know this because, man, the darkness is passing away. It is. And the true rot light is already shining. And it is evident in the way we love. Jesus would say in John chapter 13, and surely this is what the Apostle is reaching back to, not only in this section, but several different times uh, throughout the first two chapters of the letter. Jesus says in John chapter 13, verse 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you may love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's not just a command. It's also the proof test. Not simply of what you do, but of who you are. He doesn't say, by this people will know that you do disciplely things. He said, by this people will know that you are my disciples. You abide in me with each other as I abided with the Father. So, I said we go back to 1 Peter and we will. Let's just jump back to 1 Peter real quick. Chapter 1. 
And um, if, if you, uh, you know, I know for us in Mount Zion, when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, is always what it's about. But uh, I think you need to do your due diligence here. So I don't want to just kind of throw out, hey, listen, it's old and it's new, it's in Him and it's in you and it's in Christ, and that all of this is bound together. This is what Peter says. Let's, let's start with verse 10 again, but this time we'll go all the way through verse 12. He says, concerning this salvation, this one, the prophets who prophesied, back when it was old, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours when it's going to be new and in you, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them, again, this is the, this is the, the, the commonality, the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, which is the Spirit of Christ, things into which angels long to look. It's no surprise that they would long to look. That used to be a that that used to be a, a statement that, that was that really seemed um, I don't want to say weighty because I think it's still weighty, but but it, it seemed like it had a little bit of kind of you know Madison Avenue um, you know shock value advertising to it a little bit, right? Like, hey man, this salvation you have is such a big deal that angels long to look into that. What that betrays is a shallow understanding of the gospel that probably only understands the legal aspect alone. Or the, the the motivational aspect alone, because it's when you put both of them together that you see the gospel in its full power and might and glory and beauty that it really has. And so, when you consider the outcome, not only of the legal activity that provides, but the drive to elevate them to the sons and daughters of God, and you have a whole bunch of angels that. Kind of the big event in their existence was not the fall of Adam. The big event in their existence was the fall of Lucifer. And they were all there to witness it because it's not a generational thing like it is with us. They know exactly what he was before he fell. They know what he's become after he fell. They understand the order of creation he is. So much so that Michael the archangel, when disputing with Satan over the body of Moses, dared not offer what it would said would have been a blasphemous rebuke that it would have been blasphemy against God's created order if Michael had rebuked Satan instead. He said, the Lord thy God rebuke you, buddy. I, 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 I. He'll deal with you. When this is, 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 is what they have experienced in the war that they have seen and the way that he pulled down a third of the gods with him, look into this they go oh <clears throat> not archangels and guardian cherubs not locked swords with 
third of the stars falling with him. But the Creator Himself in these that results in something results in an order of creation. Scripture calls it the new creation. That makes Lucifer pale in comparison. Yeah, buddy, they long to look. It does not fit their paradigm. This thing is old, it's new. It's in Christ, and it's in me, and it's in you. I would have you note, and we, I've got to say this, I think that's, that's the message, but if we, we've, got, we've got to put this thing in, in context. And, and definitely the context that John was struggling against when he was writing it was an onslaught of early Gnosticism that was trying to pervert the Gospel of Jesus Christ into something it wasn't. And it was using a lot of sensuality to, to try to do that. And while you don't see hardly anybody walking around anymore going, I'm a Gnostic, the spirit of Gnosticism is alive and well. And it is still attempting, and it's never quit. It's, it's never like we haven't been without it. It's been there from the beginning, and it was there all the way through, um, you know, the, um, the popularization of the church when it was Romanized in, in, in the fourth century, um, and has been with us all the way through. You know, Satan doesn't get tired, doesn't get fatigued, um, and, and that that drive to pervert the gospel with with sensuality. Is, is something that is still alive and well amongst us today. And so I, I think we have to, to um, recognize here just for a moment, even if it is a little ticky-tacky, the way that John is just not only stomping on Gnosticism, but like, I don't even know if you can do with a sandal what he was doing. You need cowboy boots to put that heel on it and just grind it. Because the two major tenets of the Gnostics that were coming against the church at the time was the concept of a secret wisdom and a concept that was a moral separation between the flesh and the spirit. Um, that, uh, that, that man was a duality, um, not, not a trinity, and you had flesh and spirit, and the flesh was inherently evil, and there wasn't anything you could do about that, but the spirit could be inherently good. And so they had this idea of secret knowledge that made you special and kind of with the click crowd. And then part of that secret knowledge was that the flesh and the spirit were morally separate from each other. And since that was the case, then what you could do, as long as your spirit was in tune with Christ and what He wanted, you could take your body and just go out and do anything with it that you please. And like I said, because you know the flesh is inherently evil and there's nothing you can do about it that's going to pass away. Um, like I said, this is still alive and well today. This is the concept that lies behind Fat Tuesday and Ash Wednesday. This is the and, and hey, it's not just the Catholics. This is this is what has often been dubbed fire insurance evangelical Christianity that says you know just kind of do whatever you think as long as you've got Jesus in your back pocket at the end of the day you'll be fine. And John says it's not that way. He says, man, was there a secret knowledge? Yes, there was. And it has been revealed in Jesus Christ. So that mystery is available to all who would seek and knock. What was hidden is now revealed. So, crunch Gnosticism. And beyond that, there is no separation 
between the morality of the flesh and of the spirit. Now, there is a separation between the flesh and the spirit in that the spirit has been made the new creation and the flesh will one day be made the new creation. But as far as moral accountability goes, there is no separation. But instead, what you have is someone who out of the nature of their being then acts according to that nature. Which is why John finishes with this. Here's the practical application in chapter 2 in verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And that is true because the commandment that was old and in Christ is now new and in you. It makes you a different person and you know this because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The question is, does it shine in you? If it does, you abide in Him. If it doesn't, you don't. Great stuff. Mm -hmm. And the Gospel is exciting. Uh, Tom, why don't you pray for me?